Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Today's episode features a brilliant and creative mind, a colleague who is always thinking outside of the box and questioning the status quo. This week, I pick the brain of Brian Chapman. Pre-COVID, Brian and I would meet on a semi-regular basis and I would ask him questions, or he would ask me questions, over coffee or lunch, the same way I do today. Is a larger gift a better gift? How do we assign the value to gift impact? How should fundraisers be evaluated? Why have we trained donors to follow certain patterns? Brian Chapman is Deputy Vice President for Analytics and Business Strategy in the Office of Alumni and Development at Columbia University. In this role, he's responsible for supporting important strategic decisions with data analysis and critical business thinking. He's also the director of the Columbia Commitment, a five-year, $5 billion university campaign. Prior to joining Columbia, Brian spent five years at a small management consultancy focused on alumni and development in universities and other non-for-profit institutions. In this capacity, he consulted seven of the top fundraising universities in the United States and worked with significant institutions in Canada and the United Kingdom. Brian continues to consult to select organizations in the U.S. and globally. Previously, Brian was Chief Operating Officer for a large government agency in Illinois. He was also an associate partner at McKinsey & Company, a global consulting firm in Chicago and Amsterdam. Brian's on the board of the first ever charitable bail fund in the United States, located in Bronx, New York, and is on the board of a national charitable bail fund. He is a graduate of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Let's get started. Hey, Catherine. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You know, I've done episodes about people's careers. I've done episodes about different topics. And I feel like I haven't really done like an ethereal one like this that's very up in the ether, so to speak. Well, I will, I will uh, not evaluate that comment as much as just say, okay. <laughs> no, don't evaluate it. <laughs> it's like academic dev life, which, I lo- which is cool, but it's hard to find not particular to higher ed it's anywhere in fundraising if you ask most executives of a fundraising organization or even their lead volunteers or their organizational leader how do you know you're good at fundraising they'll say some variation on two primary answers one is we're raising more than we used to And the other is we're raising as much or more than our peer institutions. The problem is neither of those is a very effective measure of whether we're successful or not. Mm Fundraising has been going up steadily for 40 years. And so the fact that we're raising more now than we used to has much more to do with economic factors like extreme wealth. 20 years ago, the top 10 fundraising universities were raising the number is about a hundred million dollars a year. And then it, 20 years later, it's the top, the median of the top 10 is $600 million a year. It's been going up 10% every year for 20 years. 
So that doesn't tell us that much. And whether our peers raised more than we did or less than we did tells us almost nothing because it doesn't change the competitive landscape of a university or a hospital or a museum. It's really just about bragging rights, but none of that speaks to why the institution actually invests in having a development shop, which has to be because they want philanthropy to support their organizational goals. That's just not what we measure. Well, Brian, this is typical of us. We dive right in with, Sorry. you know, barely enough time to breathe because these topics are so interesting. And I think, I know I'm not the only one, but I enjoy when you are willing to nerd out on development with me. <laughs> what, when do I not nerd out? <laughs> we are going to talk about some big topics, which we already just started to in our little intro here that just starting couldn't stop but we're going to talk about the value of gifts and brian's perspective on campaign planning and strategy and some of his big ideas this is a great opportunity to curl up with a cup of coffee and just listen and think about how we could be doing things differently how you could be doing things differently so thank you brian my pleasure thanks for having me the the premise of this discussion is that there is a different way to measure the value of a gift other than the face value of it. So by way of example, let me give you a hypothetical. And I'm gonna use an intentionally large number that is outside the realm of what most fundraisers do just to prove a point. So let's look at two gifts. Gift A is a $10 million endowment for the Center for the Underwater Study of Underwater Studies. <laughs> it's a pet project of your donor. It's the largest gift she has ever made. You believe that she has much more to come beyond that. So this is a big step forward in her philanthropy to your institution. That said, the center's not a priority for the academic leadership. The marine biology department doesn't care about it. The endowment doesn't cover the full cost of it. And so the dean is gonna have to kick in some additional discretionary money in order to maintain the center. That's gift A, it's paid out over a five-year schedule. Gift B is a $5 million gift. So gift A was 10, gift B is five. It's a $5 million gift that's 75% endowed and 25% current use, and it's to financial aid, which is, as always, a major priority. So it's going to produce $250,000 per year of current use financial aid money for five years and an endowment. By traditional counting standards and just looking at it at face value, Gift A is twice as valuable as gift B, $10 million versus $5 million. Nobody, with the possible exception of donor A, believes that, that gift A is twice as valuable as gift B. You can't just look at the number on a gift report and say this gift is more important than that gift. But because we're all always chasing a bigger number than we used to have, and because we're chasing the, the accolades that come with principal gifts, 
We're very excited about gift A. We're somewhat excited about gift B. But organizationally, gift B might be eight to 10 times more valuable than gift A. That's the premise. What if we could look at gifts, not at their face value, but at their underlying value? And that might give us a different sense of how we do our work. And when you start pulling on that thread, you start feeling how many things can unravel, right? The way we measure our entire program, the way we set campaign goals, the way we set development officer goals, the way we look at a lot of what we do would no longer be just dollars raised as the key metric. It would be much more complicated. Right. I was going to ask you, what are the barriers? And you've already hinted at several. Oh, there are a lot of barriers and they start with culturally. It's very difficult to change an existing measurement system. Mm -hmm. Well, but I remember you saying to us once, and this is a little bit different, but if you raise one $5 million gift versus six or seven six-figure gifts that also equal $5 million, which year was better? Would you put that question into a similar category? Yeah, I, I would. Um, the hypothetical I think I gave you was that imagine you're a development officer who has Oprah Winfrey somehow in your portfolio yeah. because you thought, well, she's extremely wealthy and she's been philanthropic and I'd like her to be there and nobody stood in your way. And you figured out that there was a way you could camp legally outside her home that she couldn't have you removed by the police. And you stayed there for 364 days with a sign saying, Oprah, please give to us. <laughs> and at the end of the year, in order to make you go away, she said, I'll give you a $10 million gift if you promise to never bother me again. And historically you'd raise $3 million a year and now you just got a $10 million gift. Did you have a good year? And my argument would be no, because A, you alienated this donor forever. B, you spent the entire year on one donor, not all the donors that you were charged with developing relationships with. So yeah, these all fall into the same category of what are we really trying to do and how do we know we've done it? And is there a better way for us to look at that? And I think there can be. So what do you suggest is the proper, I forget what term you use, but the proper metric for determining a well-performing development office? I think it has to do with the support that that development office provided to the organization's goals. To what extent did we provide meaningful, lasting support to the priorities of the institution? Again, whatever that institution might be. Now, there's some inherent challenges to that. One is organizations aren't universally good at articulating those priorities and goals. Two, they can change over time and that's difficult to adjust to. And measuring that impact can be 
problematic. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So if we start with the idea that we need to ask, are we supporting the organization's goals? Because fundamentally, that's why we exist. So we need to be raising money for the right thing. That's first. And the second is we need to be raising it in the right form because the different ways in which gifts are raised create different economic value to the organization. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about current use versus endowed because for me, I'm in my mind thinking I'm successful if I'm raising endowed money because that's what major gifts is, right? Is that statement wrong? <laughs> Not necessarily, but nor is it necessarily right. Here's where we have to look at it in terms of what is the organizational need. So generically, endowment is like storing energy in, in a system. It's like a battery. It helps you a great deal over time but its immediate impact is not the same as a bolt of lightning, which is what current use can be. It's an immediate infusion of money to spend. So if you think about a $1 million endowment, in the first few years, it doesn't really do anything because you're paying into it to get it to a critical mass. And then it starts paying out at whatever your organization's payout rate is, which might be in the, on the average of about 5%. That doesn't do a ton for the organization right away, but a current use gift is an immediate injection. It's, it's, it's adrenaline and it can be spent right away. Now, depending on what the need is, the, the need might not be about the long term. It might be about a short term. So perhaps what we need to be thinking about is a gift that has both elements in it as opposed to a light switch that says it's current use or it's endowment, it's a dimmer that says we've got some of both. Right. Is it more this or more that? A lot of it depends on what you're actually trying to support. So it's not as simple an answer as endowment is better than current use. The problem with current use in many organizations is that it encourages fundraisers to raise smaller gifts because the perception is people don't give huge gifts to current use, which is generally borne out by the facts. But of course, those facts are a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of a circular argument because we've trained donors to do what they do. Over the last mm -hmm. 40 years, our profession has brought the expectation to donors of what a major gift means. But if we could shift that a little bit, we might be able to create more value for our organizations that are sometimes in desperate need of current use money and endowed money. Multi-year commitments to the annual fund? Sure. So again, back in that gift B example, that donor made a $5 million gift of which 25% was going to be paid out as five current use installments at the same time they're making five endowed installments mm -hmm. most donors if you think about it for that five million dollar gift the cash flow is the same the recognition is the same it's a five million dollar five-year gift that they're paying out at a million dollars a year does it matter to the donor 
whether that's all endowment or 75% endowment, 25% current use from a recognition standpoint or from a cash flow standpoint, it's exactly the same. If we could educate donors, and that starts with educating fundraisers, about what the difference in economic value between different forms of giving are, a savvy donor is more than willing to say, well, okay, you tell me if, if I can have 1.3 times the value with this form than that form, why wouldn't I want my gift to have more value? Definitely. So if you put yourself in that, in, in, in those, in, in that situation, Catherine, if I said to you as a development officer, you've got a really good donor who's really ready to make a gift and you could explain to them that the same amount of money could have more value. How would you feel going into that conversation? I would be excited about it because I think it, well, ideally it would be a mutually beneficial conversation where the person would feel even better about their gift. Exactly. But that's where I think you could also say it's not donor centric. You could say that. that. We're not, we're not potted plants here. We're not just there to take orders and say, would you like fries with that? Part of this is about helping donors understand how they can have impact in the organization that they're choosing to have impact with. You think about the size of a gift that would warrant an endowment, whatever it is, it's a lot of money in real human terms. If we talk about the form of this, which by the way, we do in gift agreements anyway, we put all kinds of red tape and footnotes and hoops for them if to jump this, through anyway. Yeah. Exactly, we, we kind of do it anyway. But if we could say to them in a very donor-centric way, the way you can have the greatest impact with this gift you're making is to think about the form of it. Now, obviously it's the donor's choice at the end of it. We're not saying we won't take the gift if it's all endowment, but if they knew that a form that included both endowment and current use had more value, if that option was on the table, how is that? I, I, I'm not sure I see how it's not donor centric. Our job, it seems to me, is to further the inst the organization's relationships with these donors to get them to maximize their philanthropic potential with us. I think at the million dollar level, all of that checks out. When we're getting to a point where someone's thinking about making a first major gift or a first six figure gift, and they're perhaps stretching to get to the $250,000 threshold, it can be, and I've done this before, it can be uncomfortable to ask for an annual gift on top of that. Now, sometimes I have, and people say, of course, I still plan on doing that. And other times people say, this isn't enough. And obviously that's where the judgment of a professional fundraiser needs to carry the day. I think the hope is that it's part of the conversation that says, Here's how your annual fund gift creates value. Here's how this major gift, which we are so grateful for you crossing that bridge with us, here's how that adds value. And you as a person who has good instincts 
and knows this donor are going to know when you can press on that and when you can't. So none of this is about an absolute rule. But as a fundraiser, if you're measured on how much did you raise, you have an incentive to say bigger is better, even if that gift is for the Center for the Underwater Study of Underwater Studies. So what do you think fundraisers should be uh, tracked by or? To me, there's a couple of principles. As it relates to results, which is what we're talking about right now, fundraisers should be, in my view, evaluated on to what extent did they raise gifts that achieve the organization's objectives. So this gets back to what are the goals? Did we raise gifts that were on point to what the organization was trying to do? That's one set of measures for the performance of a fundraiser. A second set and a critical set is we, we always talk about this is again, and we've all said it so many times, we're in the relationship business, right? We're developing donor relationships. Back to the Oprah example. A portfolio is an expression of trust by an organization to you as a fundraiser that says, I'm going to entrust these 100, 150, 50, whatever it is, the relationships with these human beings, I'm entrusting that relationship to you, Catherine Van Sickle, with the expectation that you are going to move those relationships forward to their best possible outcome, whatever that turns out to be. So another measure is, did you move those trusted relationships forward? Which is why the Oprah example, in my view, is a bad year because while your dollars raised were good, you ignored everybody in your portfolio but that one person. And those relationships, you know, that there's a line in a in a Woody Allen movie where he says, you know, relationships are like sharks. If they're not moving forward, they die. And what we have on our hands here is a dead shark. So look, if a relationship with a prospect isn't moving forward, it is by definition moving backward. We, we operate in an incredibly crowded and competitive philanthropic landscape. If we're not talking to somebody who's worthy of being assigned to our portfolios, chances are someone else is. So if we measure results by the achievement of goals defined by economic value, not just face value, and we measure the process by did we move key relationships forward, which has nothing to do with counting activities, right? How many meetings you had, etc. You can do all that stuff, but activity in and of itself may not be the best way to understand the success of a fundraiser. Well, so of course, I'm thinking to myself, our system wouldn't measure that. And how could it possibly know? And something could come up a year later that was good work that I did or my colleague did that that we wouldn't know about. And so how can people who are listening who are excited about this idea start thinking about building accountability for themselves on, you know, starting to build out the vocabulary around 
valued gifts and figuring out what they are because you're right, they're different based on the organization that you're in, the life phase of the organization, X, Y, Z. But then also, how can they track these things for themselves, whether it's on an Excel sheet or a Word doc? What do you think? I think it would be great if people started doing that because in most cases, just being direct about it, most managers aren't asking these questions. I've spoken to so many development officers over the years. And when you ask them what their meetings with their boss about progress sound like, monthly meetings or quarterly meetings or whenever they take place, they tend to focus on the last three weeks and the next three weeks. Who have you met with recently and who are you about to meet with? They should be asking holistically, how are you approaching your portfolio with the idea of moving these relationships forward? So even if you're not being prompted to it, as a development officer, what I would suggest is take a step back from your portfolio and say, how many people can I reasonably manage for real? Portfolios in our business, in my view, are way too large. Now, every fundraiser I know wants more prospects, more prospects, more prospects, but there is a realistic limit to how many people you can actively manage at a time. Well, we're looking for the diamond in the rough, Brian. Of course. And we kiss a lot of frogs <laughs> hoping for princes. I get it. Right. We're optimistic and we always think the big gift is just about to happen. But the challenge of that is you sometimes miss the prospect right in front of you because we're always looking for prince. So if we start with the idea that however many people you have in your portfolio, there's probably a core of 30 to 50 who you're really going to focus on moving the relationship forward in a measurable way. So keep that list at the top of the whole list and be asking yourself, what can I do today, this week, or this month with each one of these people to further the relationship. And you can measure that by their gifts, obviously. You can measure that by their engagement in various levels of organizational activity. You can gauge that in a very qualitative way by their receptivity to your outreach. You can gauge that by the things they choose to share with you when you're talking to them. Mm -hmm. Initially, they will be guarded with what they're giving you. Over time, they'll be less guarded. And you know, as an intuitive person, which most fundraisers are pretty good intuitive people, you know when somebody is starting to trust you. Trust is central to this relationship as any other, and you'll know whether that's happening. So whether that ever fa factors into a measurement system or not, if you get to the point where you think, these aren't my prospects, these are my organization's prospects, and they've been entrusted to me to do something, and that something is to further it, how am I doing with the inner circle of that portfolio? Am I moving them forward? And you ask yourself every morning when you look at that list, maybe it's the thing on your desktop when you open your computer in the morning and say, 
you know, I haven't spoken to this prospect in a little while. What can I do today that furthers that relationship? And now how about the language and the comfort around value and how that relates to someone's specific organization? If you want to get down to it, there's sort of three dimensions of economic value beyond just, is this something that the organization really needs? And those three dimensions are one, one we've talked about, which is the endowed versus current use or true endowments, quasi endowments, fully expendable combination of those. So that's an important dimension. Another is, um, to use the technical term, substitutional versus incremental, right? Is this gift gonna pay for something that the organization's already paying for and therefore free up money to do something else? Because we all know there are things that organizations need to do that philanthropy will just not cover. Donors are not gonna give you money to pay your electricity bill. It is just not going to happen. And I use that as an extreme example, but there's a lot of the fundamentally important elements of just having an organization that are simply not donor supportable. But if you can get donors to support things that you're currently using your unrestricted budget money to pay for, if that endowment now pays for this, I can take the money that was being used for that and pay the light bill. So substitutional money has a huge value because the money we save can now be deployed anywhere, as opposed to, I'll take this gift for that center, but now I need to add my own money to it in order to make it work. And then the third element, the third dimension of economic value is how restricted is the money? It is the dream of every organizational leader, whether they be a museum director or a hospital CEO or a dean, to get a giant, completely unrestricted gift. We trust you, do with it what you will. Here's a million dollars, be good. Doesn't happen, generally. I mean, there are always examples, but they are, they I mean, are is that few more and far between. We see that more with the quest gifts. Right, because somebody put the organization in their estate without necessarily specifying precisely what it's doing. But generally speaking, the larger the gift, the more restricted it is. And again, right. we, we trained donors to do that. They, didn't, right. they weren't born doing that, but over the last four decades or so, we've trained them to do it. Presumably, we can train them to a different behavior long-term. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, the larger the gift, the more restricted it is. But the less restricted, even just somewhat restricted, loosely restricted, has more value than very tightly restricted. If you get a gift that says you can really only spend it for specifically this and nothing else, that has less economic value to the organization. And then it says, you need to spend it in this category of activity, but I'm not telling you exactly where. So if we as development professionals can think about 
the endowed versus current use, the substitutional versus incremental, and the highly restricted all the way to unrestricted. Think of them as almost slider bars, right? You know, where right, is the yeah. gift on those three dimensions? Mm -hmm. We can get to a different sense of the value of the gift, presuming that it's something that the organization actually wants to begin with. It's exciting because it all sounds new and yet I think, no, it's not. I mean, we know, we talk about priorities and most places do. They know what's important, whether it's within a campaign or something else, but it is a new way of thinking about portfolio management. It is, and, and you're absolutely right that organizations talk about priorities and they make plans and they set goals. The problem is at the end of the day, the way we measure our performance tends not to be aligned with that. So we say right, we want exactly. those yes. things. Yes. But then later when we say, how do we do, we fall back on the rather crude measure of here's how Ours. much we raised. And it's the lack of connection between those goals in the idealistic moments at the beginning of the year or the beginning of the campaign and those frantic moments at the end of the fiscal year, yeah. or the end of the campaign, when we wanna put up a big number, it's the disconnect between those two that becomes a problem. And without having this finer view of what we're actually trying to do, it's very difficult to improve performance because if performance is only measured as more and we're in a business where the largest donors represent such a disproportionate share of the giving, we've set ourselves up in this way that kind of disenfranchises a lot of people in our organization. If you're raising a bunch of $250,000 gifts, they might be really meaningful. They might be really important to our pipeline. They might be really important to the things that we're raising the money for. But in the context of a huge organization like the one you and I work at, in terms of the absolute numbers, they just aren't that big. And we can have a mistaken impression about what's important and what's not. And the resources and the attention tend to flow to what we think is important. So if we're measuring the wrong stuff, by definition, our activity and our resource tends to flow to the wrong stuff. Well, Brian, thank you so much. I always love thank you for letting me do this. <laughs> I know you know a lot of things, but I have to end with asking you what you know for sure. Well, let's start with the premise that I try to live by the idea that I don't know many things for sure. A lot of people say that and I cut that out. <laughs> yeah, this is a challenge, but I will tell you, I, I will say what I know for sure is that we are all better off as people and as a profession and as a society when we question things rather than accept them at face value. Whether that's what we were taught when we started in our business or whether it's what we're told by our leadership in the country or whatever it may be, if we question with facts, we are better off than accepting at face value. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure, Catherine. Thanks for having me. We have a new opportunity in about six weeks to start fresh with 2021. What boundaries or best practices will you question? 
How will you push yourself to get curious at your organization? And how will you assign value to your use of time and the gifts that you're closing? Let me know. Reach out on LinkedIn or Instagram at devdebrief. I'd love to hear what you're thinking about. Share it with Brian or continue the conversation. Until next time.